0: So before we start the show, this was all recorded and done and ready before the Tuesday night games ended. Took a look at the scores, figured probably not going to be one worth having to wait for. And then St. Bonaventure makes a 20 point comeback against VCU. So when we talk about VCU at the very end there, the context being we did not ignore that game. We just didn't know that it was going to happen that way yet. It is worthy of at least two minutes of of my voice in your ears right here, though. St. Bonaventure did not surrender a three-point make in the last 18 minutes of the game. Absolutely incredible perimeter defense. And I think the whole game's really summed up by a two-play sequence that occurred basically right at the five-minute mark. Kiwani Kiwani gets a wide-open three at the top of the key. And all of a sudden, you see Chad Venning moving possibly faster than I've ever seen him move, in midair, flying at Kiwani to contest the shot. He misses. They come down. Daryl Banks hits a pull-up three to give St. Bonaventure their first lead of the entire game. A lead that they would surrender beyond that point. It's not like the game was just over from there on out, but it was that level of defensive effort from the Bonnies all second half. They were flying at shooters constantly. VCU could not get a clean look at any point. But we got we to gotta talk about Daryl Banks, who ever since getting moved to the bench has been absolutely spectacular in three of those five games, looking like the Daryl Banks who's on the all-conference team. And I think two weeks ago, he doesn't make that tough pull-up three in a key moment like he did tonight. If he's on, if he's playing like this, the Bonnies might just be the favorite to finish in third place at this point. And certainly doesn't hurt that they now have the tiebreaker clinch with a 2-0 record over VCU. I think the, the, the really the last thing with this game, Micah Adams-Woods, over the last three games has just proven that he is the most important player to the Bonnies. As great as Chad Venning is, they can't survive without Micah Adams-Woods. And all credit to Duquesne's defense last week. But the Bonaventure offense was putrid without him out there. And he basically dictated the flow of the game in the last 10 minutes here. It's not going to show it in the box score. The box score is going to tell you that the most impressive thing was Banks scoring 11 points in the final 10 minutes. And that was massive. They don't win this game without him. But Micah Adams Woods was in control when it really mattered. And he's putting together an all-conference season here. But watch out for these Bonnies. All of a sudden, 4-4. Four and four, Those bad losses... Not looking quite so bad when you look at how impressive they've been in the two VCU wins and then the Daryl Banks and Moses Flowers Duel Inferno Fest against St. Joe's. They're going to Dayton on Friday. Got a chance for a huge, huge, huge win that would absolutely catapult them if they can get it. But even so, they're right in the thick of the conversation to stay now. That much is certain. And it's time to go on to a fantastic episode starting with Richmond head coach Chris Mooney.
1: We build
0: Welcome to an all new episode of the three bid league podcast. And later in this episode, Matt and I are going to revive one of our favorite traditions and go over our all fun teams for this season. But the first half here, we got a fantastic guest. And I'm honored to say that I'm joined for the second time on the show by a member of the 1993 94 Princeton Tigers men's basketball team. That is Richmond head coach, Chris Mooney coach. Thank you for joining me.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the intro. Yeah,
0: yeah a a legend who uh, loved his time at Princeton so much that he runs the Prince, his own variation of the Princeton offense. And one of the biggest keys to that is Neil Quinn, who is having a fantastic year in his second season at Richmond. He's basically gotten better in every category you can look at, eye test or stats-wise. What is it about him that, has made him such a perfect fit here and has made him a better player in year two.
2: Well, one, he's a very, very hard worker. Uh, I would say that sometimes, you know, um, you know, with big guys, the coaches are really always trying to get them to be in the gym. Uh, And Neil's really the opposite. He is uh, very dedicated. Uh, He's very organized about his workouts. When he comes in, he gets his extra work in. He does a lot of extra cardio um he's really improved his body significantly since since he's been at richmond um and then of course his ability to uh pass the ball and score uh, his shooting touch you know he has so many uh, great things that he does on the floor and he makes it so difficult to be defended because he can see so well uh, and has a great knack for who the open man is and where space is on the floor so Combination of of his his talent uh, and then his work ethic and his desire to win and compete and also he's a an elite defender you know he really is a great defender and has been probably the key to to our defensive success so I would say that he's a terrific all around player and um, you know we're certainly very lucky to have him.
0: So you mentioned his defense and if you take a look at Ken Pomp's defensive defensive efficiency metric. <laughs> This is just barely the second best defensive team you have had at your time at Richmond. The only one that was better, the 2011 team that got a seven seed in the NCAA tournament. What's the key to that turn to, I guess, really that, not necessarily a turnaround, but taking such a huge jump this year and relying on that end of the floor when a lot of your other great Richmond teams have been
2: a little bit more offensive oriented. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, I would like to think about it that our teams have been, um, you know, oriented around having a great understanding of the game. No, I think that's how we probably teach both offense and defense in terms of teaching anticipation, teaching spacing, um, teaching where you can help, whether it's defensive end, where you can drive on the offensive end. But yes, this team is really, really terrific defensively. You know, I think it starts with Neil and, well, he's not as much of a rim protector. He is a rim protector, but not quite in the way that you would think of a guy who really blocks and changes a ton of shots. He does that, but it's more his overall positioning, his willingness to defend on the perimeter, his willingness to defend smaller players when he needs to, uh, and then surrounded by a lot of speed and instinct. You know, when when guys are out on the perimeter, uh, they can feel more comfortable utilizing that speed, being aggressive because they have very good instincts and because they know Neil for the most part is protecting them uh, in the lane, in the paint and, you know, near the rim. So I would say that those are probably the two biggest things. you know, Neil's overall great defensive prowess and then the speed and instinct of the perimeter players.
0: Yeah. And all of that came together. One of the most, one of the things that really stood out the most in the Dayton game in that big victory for your team was the fact that that defense served as a deterrent to one of the superstars in this league, Deron Holmes, who had a career high and three-pointers attempted. And we're recording this partway through Dayton's next game against George Washington. He is back in the paint, menacing the rim again. So it, do you credit that to, to what Neil does? Do you credit that to the guards stopping dribble penetration? Or is it something that I'm missing on completely?
2: No, I think it's probably a comment. You know, that's a single game and and he's an elite player and, um, you know, he's just a tremendous player. And I think that, you know, he has added uh, three-point shooting or he has enhanced and improved his three-point shooting. And he probably had a couple early in the game that were – well, they were all good shots. I think he had a couple in the game that were – that the ball came around to him in the perfect position and, you know, a couple went in and out. Um, So that probably helped us a little bit. And then I think, you know, sometimes a game takes a a form of its own. And of course he was bothered by foul trouble. Um, And I'm not surprised to see tonight that he's back to being um, dominant. And uh, I'm sure that that'll remain that way the rest of the season, because he's a great player. Uh, But I think that that's, you know, sometimes in the course of one game with a big atmosphere and a hungry team, you know, the game can just take different a different shape and statistics can be more of an anomaly than, than a pattern.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to actually take it back to our conversation about Neil Quinn from the beginning here. And one of the key things you mentioned is the space, the space that he helps to create. And one of the things that's become so evident to me watching, especially over these last few weeks here in conference play, is the fact that he takes a, a different positioning than some of the other great bigs you've had. Grant Golden, another guy who was all over the court, but a lot more of a foul line oriented player. Even look at Neil Quinn's backup right now, Mike Walls. He is constantly playing high up above the free throw line. Neil Quinn is concentrated on the block a lot. So can you just help explain to me and all the other people listening who don't understand basketball at the level
2: you do, what does that do to the geometry of your offense? Yeah, that's a great question. I would think that, Neil is probably uh, a. We've had a fair amount of great centers, including Grant Golden and Dan Giroux and TJ Klein. Neil's uh, the, the most, um, he has the most complete post game uh, or post package of moves. And he's also the easiest guy to throw it to because of his size. Um, and we really like operating out of a low post with Neil because again for neil he can really see the floor whether he's at the elbow or the high post or low post um but we like to throw it there because it puts so much pressure on the rim um and if you have to make a decision whether to double team him or to um you know stunt at him that gives guys you know when he throws the ball back out or finds the open man a lot of space and a lot of confidence to do what they might do next so um you know, I, I would say that a lot of times when I watch, we'll, we'll throw the ball in multiple times on one possession to kneel into the low post. Uh, and just as a way to say, like, hey, we, we want you to go create and make something happen. Uh, and if you don't, then throw the ball back out and you can trust that it'll go back in. So um, when he's in that area and he's being aggressive, then we're awfully difficult to guard because the spacing on the court is good, the passing's good, uh, and he's putting pressure on. On the basket, because of his of his um, you know his array of moves and his finishing ability.
0: Yeah, and when he kicks that ball out, one of the guys that it's going to who's certainly putting a lot of other pressure on the defense is Jordan King, guy who was a great scorer at a lower level, but took a pretty big jump up conference wise here, and has basically been the same guy on the stat sheet that he was in his previous stops, and. So what was it that you saw in him? What made you believe that as yet another fantastic Richmond small guard
2: that he could succeed in the A-10? Well, I think when we first saw, you know, of course the portal is, is a different kind of recruiting and you really have to, you know, you don't have as much time to, you have to watch everybody and get information on everybody, but the window of the recruitment is smaller. And so the great thing about it was, you know, a minute into watching clips of him and game action of him, you know, I, I loved him. I loved the way he played. I loved his um, sense for the game, his ability to find space on the floor, uh, his legs, his jump shot. Um, and so I, I really thought that he would be able to play at anywhere. And, um, and when I first talked to him, I think it made me realize how, how great of a sense for the game he had. And, you know, sometimes, scorers like him uh their sense for the game is good but it's it's somewhat limited to their ability to score and where they can find shots and very instinctual in that way but he really has a great sense for the game in terms of where guys are you know how cutting can impact uh his possession the other player's possession how how he can deal with uh getting a lot of attention paid to him and so uh, you know I thought we had a great first conversation and then, you know, we recruited him really hard because I thought he was, you know, I think he's been probably the, in in my opinion, I don't watch nearly enough, but uh, the best, you know, transfer pickup of, uh, or one of the best in the country. And, uh, and right from the beginning, I think he really liked Richmond and, you know, we, we certainly loved him.
0: Yeah. Do you give him the freedom to kind of feel out when he needs to break the offense? He he reminds me of another, transfer you brought in a few years ago, Blake Francis, just a guy who could get buckets, who really can kind of drag your
2: team out of the mud when things aren't really going to plan. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because I I hear that expression break, break the offense. And while I I, like, you know, I, I know that that is how it could be seen. I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're always just trying to get the best shot and move the defense and, I think his aggressiveness is really a big help. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like if you had five players running the offense perfectly, you know, you could wind up with shot clock violations and really pretty possessions and no points. I think Jordan's aggressiveness not only helps us because it puts points on the board, but it helps our mindset and how we want to try to attack the game. And so, you know, we're, we're going to pass the ball and spread the floor and play together and try to cut and move. Uh, but we also want to be aggressive with each, each time we're cutting each time we're driving to the basket. And I think he helps us do that because he really is relentless um, and put so much pressure on the defense to have to try to stop him.
0: So uh, taking it out a little bit higher level here, you have a ton of transfer acquisitions on this team. We just talked about two of them. We got the Lonnie Hunt, Jason Roach. Isaiah Bigelow is the perfect example of the reason why I want to ask this question. He's a guy who put up, quite frankly, ho-hum numbers at Wofford. Another guy who took a big jump up in conference. I think a lot of people saw that he was coming to Richmond and thought, eh, not a big number, guys. Is it really going to translate to this level? He's not only done that, he's gotten better in his two years on this team what are you looking for when you go into the transfer portal? What's, what's the first thing you want to see from a guy before you start
2: going after him? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I would say, well, number one, and, and I mean this genuinely, you no, know, we really need guys who can um, fit at Richmond can handle the academic work. Um, guys who will be part of the team and the culture that we've tried to build and how we see basketball at Richmond. And so you know, that generally means like a, a good guy who's responsible, who's, um, you know, respectful of his teammates and the program and those kinds of things. So Isaiah off the charts in those areas. And then I think basketball wise, versatility has always been really important. And I think that Isaiah, one, he played for a uh, great, great coach of Mike Young his freshman year. Um, and, you know, Wofford had a great style of play. He was able to showcase that he was a versatile player. Uh, You know, I think that, um, you know, when guys, when you're his size and his level of athlete uh, and you can handle the ball on the perimeter and you're comfortable and shoot the ball from the perimeter, you know, that's pretty special. And I feel like maybe we have a way of utilizing that really, really well. Um, And I think the way that we go about trying to help guys to develop Is have them play a lot of basketball, have them make a lot of decisions, have the ball in their hand, Uh, and I think that's been proven to be effective. Um, Of course, we used to think about it over a four and five year period. Now you have to think about it in in one, two, or three year period. Uh, But I think we've been we've been pretty good at doing that. And Isaiah is a great example of that because he has, you know, he's he's certainly improved his overall game, his efficiency, and those kinds of things. Uh, and then, you know, with that comes greater confidence. Uh, and and hopefully it just, you know, improves because of that confidence even more. So you
0: said it used to be a four or five year period. And for one member of your starting lineup, it still is. Jai Bailey in year four with the team is a guy who had a lot of injury issues, played sparingly in his first few seasons. Now 28 minutes a game, a critical piece, playing more of a forward role after he got thrust into some point guard minutes at the end of last season. What's the biggest reason for his improvement and becoming a critical cog this season?
2: Yeah, I mean, Jai is the biggest reason for his improvement, you know. Um one, he's a tremendous person. Um you know, you know, he's had a he, he before this year he had some frustrating injuries, some things that um were were nagging, some things that were you know, very difficult and took him out of practice for, for, you know, a week or two at a time. Um, But he's the one, I think that right in the spring when the season was over, uh, you know, wanted to improve and not just improve because he was already very good, but wanted to get stronger, wanted to attack the off season. And right from the spring, he had a tremendous off season. Uh, You know, he's always been a very fluid, very graceful player um he has a great sense for the game he can pass uh he can attack the rim he's a very good finisher with all different kinds of layups um and he's a very good defender you know so he he does so many things well uh I just think he needed to have a you know a better bit a little bit better luck um and I think that his you know playing a little bit more at forward and he does still play some guard probably would help almost every player uh because you know, he's now more of a mismatch. They have a hard, there's a hard time matching up with him because he does have guard skills and still plays guard and does very well. Um, but, it, you know, sometimes that's a, some responsibility taken care of by Delaney and Jordan or Mikel uh, and Jai can make those plays from a forward position uh, with someone not quite as quick or not quite as small underneath them. So uh, I couldn't be happier for him for having a great year and, you know, he he's earned it and has worked very, very hard for it.
0: Yeah, and all of this has come together. First 7-0 start in A-10 play for the Richmond Spiders. Longest win streak since 1935. What do you credit being the biggest reason for your team's success to this point?
2: Honestly, uh, the competitiveness and competitive spirit of the team. I thought, you know, when we got our team essentially all together, the second summer session, uh, which again, the new normal, um, that's what I noticed right away. from workouts, you know, even when we're just doing shooting workouts or we're first time we're out there playing a little bit, there's a competitiveness that the team really has. And you know, whether it's a morning workout afternoon, whether we're it's a competition in shooting or playing live, there's a real competitiveness every day. And you know that goes really far in terms of uh, the long dog days of the season when that's a primary attribute of your team that you want to compete, you want to be out there playing. And uh, you know, we have an expression, you know, we have a chance to play today. We have a chance to play and this team really embodies that. And um, I I feel like that from the beginning gave me a lot of confidence that we would be all right. We had nice pieces, but together there was just a real uh, genuine competitiveness about the entire team.
0: Yeah, and it's great to see Richmond playing this way. Again, the conference is always in a good place when Richmond is playing well. But the best thing out of all of it, especially for me, someone who's paid attention to this conference since I was a little kid, I've known I've known Chris Mooney on the Richmond sidelines basically my entire basketball watching life, save for about a month last season. And the best part of the season is getting to see you back on the sidelines healthy again. So that is great to see, Coach.
2: Now, that's really nice of you to say. I, honestly, I, I really, really appreciate you saying that. Thank you.
0: Well, it's, it's great, like I said. And I want to wrap it up with one final question for you here. Because you go through life and in all walks of life, you learn that there are people that when someone's in their orbit, anyone who knows them always wants to tell a story about them. And when you're listening to interviews, you find out that one guy that you were very close to many years ago is one of those people.
2: So can you give us your best Pete Correll story? (laughs) Wow. Well, there are many, a a few that I can't give, of course. Um, You know, I'll I'll tell you one. We were, uh, when I was in high school, I had committed to go to Princeton and coach girl came to see me play in a, an outdoor summer league game and, uh, or spring league maybe. And I saw I was going to college soon and I came down to see me play. And after the game, I had a little notebook and I, went over to him and I said, Hey coach crew, I'll be there soon. You know, could you, could you give me some things to write down that I can work on before I get to college? And he looked around and he said, kid, there's not enough paper in all of Philadelphia for the things you need to work on. So it was downhill from there, but, uh, but no, he's, you know, obviously he's impacted so many of us that are in coaching. So many of us that are not in coaching um, and the things that he taught and valued I think you know one of the greatest compliments is that you know John Thompson III, uh, Mitch Henderson, Brian Earl, Sidney Johnson, Mike Brennan—that you you can see in all of all of the teams that they have—and obviously had a a tremendous impact on the sport at at every level. And I'm proud to have played for him.
0: Yeah, it it is truly crazy how many coaches came out of that program. You see, you see plenty good players come out of all the programs run by great coaches like that, but. You don't see a coaching tree tend to spread like that. Pete Carrill, an absolute legend. And anytime you hear someone like a Sidney Johnson or a Mitch Henderson talk about him, they always have something great to say.
2: No doubt about it. No doubt about it.
0: So that's, that seems like a great place to close it here. Richmond sitting in first place alone in the A-10 as we record this. Head coach Chris Mooney, thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: All right, now we're going to bring back one of our favorite yearly traditions on the show. It is the sixth annual drafting of our all-fun teams. And Matt, we made two rule tweaks this year. Number one, as you proposed, instead of it being we can only take one player each from each team, we're saying that we got to go with 10 different teams entirely here. And also for just the second time in six years, we have a guy who's... So obviously the number one pick that we have decided that he is ineligible.
1: Yeah, Achille Spadone, not eligible this year, unfortunately. Just having a great season over at Davidson.
0: Achille Spadone, legitimately draftable.
1: That's He's my fun. Well, here. If, if we're going to have 10 guys, yeah, I mean, we could get pretty deep. And that was the whole idea. But yeah, uh, apologies to Deron Holmes, who is also ineligible this year, decided that would be kind of worthless talking more about him. But I, I don't know about you, the, the names I came up with for this draft, I did not go back and listen to who we picked last year, but I'm confident that none of mine are repeats because either all of my players were not in the A-10 last year or just weren't very good last season. So
0: I think we should get some fresh names in this year's edition of the draft. I might have one repeat, but I don't think so. I have a lot of newcomers on my short list as well. I have a guy who took a big step up this year. And I have one guy very high up who's a returner who at this time last year actually hated watching. And it's a, one of the the all-time legendary 180s of, of my opinion of a player's funness.
1: All right. Well, I'm excited to hear that. But to determine the draft order, I, I came up with a trivia answer. I feel like you watch enough duquesne you're at all the games that you should get this one and this is a stat i looked at when weighing the options of my all fun teams and maybe this is a player that we'll end up talking about
0: there can are you only me... two duquesne players even close to eligible right now but carry on
1: well maybe this is one of them can you tell me which duquesne duke leads the atlantic 10 in missed dunks this year
0: wow so Halil Barre is probably dead last in dunk percentage, if that's a real stat, but he just doesn't play that much. So it it has to be David Dixon.
1: Yeah, it's Dave Dixon. He is only sixteen for twenty four, which is kind of an awful percentage on dunks. I, I was I was shocked when I saw that on on Bart Torvik this evening. I mean, eight missed dunks in one year feels like a ton, but I- I'm surprised he's only made 16. That was the other shocking part of it. Just a-, a wild stat that's so bad
0: it's good. I mean, David Dixon, a player who, if you catch him for the right four minute period, looks like he should be starting for an ACC team, or on the wrong four minute period, looks like he shouldn't even be a Division one player. So, the that, that kind of kind of defines his season and. By the way, absolutely a candidate.
1: Oh, yeah, he's definitely in the running for me. But yeah, maybe I fed you a softball there, but you got it right. So I will defer to you with the first pick.
0: I can't believe I'm about to do this here. I hated watching him last year. He looked like a, a terrible fitness team's offense, he couldn't get rebounds. He still doesn't rebound spectacularly, but playing off of the first half of this podcast, if Deron Holmes is not eligible, the first pick in this draft is still a center, and it is Richmond's Neil Quinn. The perfect Grant Golden successor at this point. He's a guy that if you just love watching beautiful basketball, you can't enjoy. You can't not enjoy watching him play the movement that he creates, the mismatches that he can orchestrate around the floor. It was painful for Dayton fans, but in the middle of that second half when he was in and Holmes was out and they were just throwing him post-ups against power forwards, I felt like he could have done whatever he wanted. He probably should have just bowled over guys, but he was still trying to do that deliberate, jokic y Look to see if someone got a three before he decided to just bull over whatever poor power forward got mismatched onto him. He's an offensive wonder. And the biggest reason why he started to become watchable, well, rather so watchable, is the fact that he is now just flat out a good defender. I thought he looked slow-footed a lot last year on that end. The first half against Holmes was the best defense he has ever played. And he was just a flat-out asset for the Spiders and them shutting down Dayton's offense early on in that game.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think he was a big part of forcing Deron Holmes to take nine three-pointers, which isn't really what Dayton wants oh. to do to have success. And just his transformation, I mean... I feel like the style of play isn't entirely different from the rest of his career, but just the fact that he's helped make Richmond so much better. He's got more talent on his team this year and it's, it's just been perfect. But I, I think in particular, like we knew he was skilled offensively, but the defensive strides have been just a massive boost for the spiders.
0: Yeah. And now the rule comes into play because Jordan King no longer able to be selected in this draft.
1: I know Nor, he, Nor he was Isaiah definitely on Bigelow. my list. No, yeah, Richmond actually, after last year, were they probably weren't very fun, besides our, our favorite Matt Grace. Like, yeah, you had a couple guys. I definitely would have selected Jordan King or had him in the running. So, no, a, a worthy first overall pick. All right. For my, my first round selection, I, I don't want to go too deep into talking about him just because we spent a lot of time, but. I, I think all year I've just been enamored by the big guard, Keyshawn Hall at George Mason. Feels like he's just, he's probably been the biggest surprise of the conference coming from UNLV, barely playing there, having a, a couple breakout games, but couldn't stay on the court. And he's clearly been George Mason's best player. Looks like the Patriots are starting to turn it around. He's coming off a 22 point game against Rhode Island. And overall, kind of dipped a little during their three-game skid, but George Mason still could be one of... They're a double-by contender, and he's a big part of that. Just with his versatility, he's a huge part of Mason's excellent interior defense, but also just the way he stretches the floor is something that we didn't anticipate, and it's led to the Patriots being one of the best shooting teams in the league also. So just excited to see where he develops... It's kind of hard to believe he's only a sophomore with some of the things he's done on the
0: court this year. On my nine-man list, without a doubt, it's because of the fact that he truly is the big guard, no longer weight-wise, but height-wise. If you just flip on a game, he might look like he's 6'2 initially, if you have no idea who Keyshawn Hall is. And then the moment he turns around and just starts attacking the rim, you realize that this man is far from a guard despite having the skills.
1: Yeah, I mean, feels like out of any player in the league, just from his skill set, he might be the biggest matchup nightmare in the conference because you need someone with the size and quick and quickness to try to stop him. And there's not many who can.
0: All right. To me, there's now three teams that just far and away have way more candidates than anyone else. And those are they all have what my next three picks would be if I was just rattling this off. So this is a tough one, but I just, I can't let him get away. I have to take the funnest rookie in this league. And that is Darren Buchanan Jr. on GW. The guy looks like he grew up in 1976, tried to become a power forward. And in that traditional basketball world, someone told him he was too small. So he hopped in a time machine, took his essentially bigger, small forward frame and his center skills and just popped out onto earth in 2023. He takes bigger dudes in the paint like he's that unskilled dude at the YMCA and just punishes them offensively. And that's what I just thought he was for like three games. Turns out Just like Keyshawn Hall, he has a ton of skill. He can hit threes. He can attack off the perimeter. I have absolutely no idea what position he is because you can use him and Garrett Johnson interchangeably all over the court on both ends. And by the way, Garrett Johnson, another guy who would have been really, really close to this list if we didn't have team restrictions. But Buchanan has just been spectacular to watch this year. I feel like he can score in truly in any which way he chooses.
1: Honestly, like when you bring up Johnson, I think with GW, this is the one team in the conference. I feel like you could have picked any one of their five starters. You
0: and, really could
1: have. And defend it. Like, it's just an entertaining team. And Buchanan with his unique skill set only as a freshman, uh, another guy that it's just exciting to see where he'll end up in the a
0: he would have been my captain two weeks ago. And then Quinn just kind of took the spot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that certainly, that knocks off a uh, a really easy team for one of us to pick. So, ha- had to get a GW player on here. Okay, for my second pick, when I was digging up the Dunks statistic in the conference, pretty obviously Daron Holmes leading the the conference. And he's only missed one this year. I I don't remember when that happened, but I guess Bartorvik is usually right. Number two by a substantial margin, Toby Lawal of VCU. He is at 41 dunks, only two behind Duran Holmes. Just about twice as many as third place at 21. And I think that is pretty crazy considering Lawal, if you compare him to Duran Holmes, plays about half as many minutes scores about a third of the points but this guy who is probably the best athlete in the a10 who we've known about for two years now with his insane vertical leap, he is just an offensive rebounding machine and that is when vcu i think is at their best when they they figured out that he can play the five i think the rams are at their best when he's doing that And that's just such a tremendous asset to their offense when he's loading up on second chance points. And pretty much if he gets the ball within five feet of the basket, it's going to be a dunk. I don't know how much else offensively he's providing yet at this stage in his career, but he's clearly developed so much from year one to year two, where last year he was just a crazy athlete playing in very small doses. This year, he's a key contributor and one of the best post players on the team without a doubt
0: what he did provide against davidson on saturday was seven of eight free throw shooting yeah most of it in the clutch while vcu's guards were struggling at the line and it it was kind of amazing davidson couldn't figure out how to keep the ball away from him they were just kind of starting to hack him to keep him away from those dunks but a a wonderful choice there one quick question for you though because i i I really enjoy watching VCU as a team. I'd say if we were ranking team by team, they'd probably be second or third for me this mm-hmm. this season. But beyond the wall, I struggled to find another candidate for this.
1: I think you could make a case. The next guy that comes to mind is probably Zeb Jackson for me, just with his defense and ability to drive to the rim. But the wall's the easy first pick for me on that team.
0: I think if Seb Jackson was still playing last year's role, he would have been high up for me. Mm-hmm. But I, I, just, I like kind of cringe every time he shoots a three.
1: Yeah, that, that takes and away it's a It's really lot. killing it. I mean, teams still kind of just dare him to shoot, I think more than anyone in the conference. Just because you have to give him the space though, because otherwise he he is one of the quickest first steps I've seen in the league. Um, But going back to, I just wanted to bring up more walls shooting. He was five for 17 total from the line last year. So the fact that he made seven in a game is very impressive.
0: Yeah, I think it was six for six in the final 10 minutes as well. The only other guy I want to mention with them, I-, I feel like a month from now, if he does start to play more consistently, Sean berstow could very easily be on this list. He yeah, he still he has too many tried. games where he's just invisible at this point.
1: Yeah, just haven't, haven't seen him quite do enough. Yeah, at this point in the year.
0: All right. Even the old fun team needs a dog on it. You need that gritty defender. And so I'm going to take Enoch Cheeks. The least talked about of the Dayton key six players. A guy who, as I mentioned last week, has a little Trey Landers in him with his physicality, has a little bit of Kyle Davis in him, with his quick feet on the perimeter. He's a guy who you can match up on anyone, one, two, or three. Occasionally some some specific fours. And it's fun to just watch him get physical with these guys. But the funnest part about Cheeks is that when he's on the offensive end, he plays like a complete and total lunatic. And at least three times in a game, you're just going to be watching... The ball will go up, and you will just see a body just completely fly across the paint for no reason at all. That dude, a few times a game, will will crash the glass so recklessly. He almost never gets the rebounds. But his leap is breathtaking. He plays with a crazy ferocity. And, yeah, I think that taking Duron Holmes out was fun for this game because we get to talk about Enoch Cheeks.
1: Yeah, he's a good pick, definitely in the running for glue guy of the year, and not just leaping for rebounds, but I think for a guard, he's probably better than anyone at meeting players at the rim and just contending everything. I, I'm I'm disappointed, though. I was about to take the spark plug, Javon Bennett, next, just loving his on-ball defense this year and propensity to get red hot from three after yeeting a couple off the backboard out of nowhere. He'll just start making a few. But yeah, that, that's a good pick. I feel like do we need to I have no guards yet and I feel like we need to at least try to make some kind of starting lineup out of this so I'll go that route I don't think there's a ton of candidates on this team so I'll just take him Jaden House from Rhode Island I think he is kind of as advertised this year what we were expecting just a gunner who can get crazy hot at any moment, even when his team has struggled a bit at times this year, like they're going through right now. But we saw it in the Dayton game. We saw it against UMass when he had 29 points. This guy can just catch fire at any moment. And he's actually been more efficient than he was his previous years at high point, which is kind of surprising considering he's kept up the same really high volume in a, a more difficult conference. So, I don't know Rhode Island still that that's kind of what takes him down a notch is that the team hasn't been as good as I had hoped but just one-on-one like he doesn't get talked as much about as like the the Kings and the Bishops and the Reynolds type players because his team's not as good and he's probably not quite on that level but still I mean when he is on playing at his best he's not a whole lot different than those guys
0: yeah, his best just doesn't come as frequently as those other guys, but if you were going to take a roadie player, really the only entertainment you get out of that team is when either he, Courtright, or Green just gets cooking. Mm-hmm. All right, I can't believe this. I thought that there were four teams that had a whole bunch of candidates, and somehow I'm going to get each of my top four picks from those teams. In this one, maybe it's a reach. I think this is more of a personal preference to take him over some of his teammates. But I'm going to take Xavier Brown as the St. Joe's representative in this draft. Over Fleming, over Reynolds. As Sandico might be there by the end of the year, he's started to make his case in the past few games. But it's one specific thing with Xavier Brown, and that is his burst going to the rim. He turns into, like, young Derek Rose when he's attacking the basket. It, it's really unbelievable. And people rave about his great three-point shooting, and reasonably so. One of the best shooters in the conference, I believe, yeah, he's sitting at fourth in three-point percentage on the season. As a freshman, he's played 20 games. He has never gone cold. But it's just that relentless attack of the rim. Eric Reynolds has it. Xavier Brown has it. And when those two get ahead of steam going downhill, St. Joe's just becomes a delightful offense.
1: Yeah. As you're explaining that, I'm, I'm just realizing I, I totally blew that pick in Xavier Brown. Like, I, I don't know if he's more fun than Jaden house, but I could have had Jaden house whenever I wanted in this. Oh, you draft.
0: absolutely could have. I was not taking a rowdy person.
1: Yeah. No, I actually, I was kind of between uh, Brown and Rashir Fleming as a St. Joe's candidate. But I think what gets me for Brown is, like, as a freshman, his just basketball knowledge and mindset. Like, he is an intelligent player for his lack of experience, and I I think that bodes well for him just moving forward in the future. You can already see him playing like a veteran out there, fearlessly taking it to the rim. And, yeah, I I think that's that's an awesome pick. He's definitely – Still in the running for Rookie of the Year, especially if St. Joe's can find a way to turn things around, but he's been great all year. All right, my next pick. I was kind of surprised by his overall numbers and just lack of minutes this year, because there's been a lot of times, and maybe it's just recency bias from the weekend, I feel like he could be this team's best player. I'll go with Elijah Gray from Fordham. Out of the him. Yeah, I just think out of the the heralded sophomore class that the Rams have, he's really the one guy that's broken out, not quite into a star because he, he still only plays about 18, 19 minutes a game, but has had some huge performances this year, going back to the first game of the season against Wagner when he led the team and made some clutch threes and then against Duquesne when he had 19 points and eight rebounds. Just an overall like on a, a struggling offensive team, he's one of the best shooters at 34% from three and 76% from the line, which if you're a Fordham Ram, that's really good this time of year, considering where the rest of the team is at, but top 25 in both offensive and defensive rebounding rates in the conference, he dishes out a pretty good amount of assists, just overall fills up the stat sheet and brings the defense too, like a lot of guys do for Fordham, but Yeah, just kind of surprised by especially his recent jump in conference play. He's been in double figures six out of the last seven games and really seems to be turning a corner.
0: This was lingering all non-con where they were starting to play him at the four in crunch time. And you could see the value that the spacing he brought had for that offense. But it, it was so clunky. Him and Simbilla on the court together, just it just flat out doesn't work. There's too much size, a little bit too much slowness. And I think at this point, Keith Ergo has just leaned into the fact that Gray might actually be his team's best player, not only just its most entertaining. And in this Duquesne game, he he played him like a workhorse. Zimbela was basically just kind of a like a true backup, only playing eight minutes a game to Gray's 27. And it was, actually, I think it was nine to 29 because they are basically one of them was on the floor the whole game. But yeah, those minutes are going to keep going up. He's a big candidate for most improved as well.
1: Yeah, if he keeps playing like this, he's definitely heading in that direction.
0: All right, I'm actually going to get my exact starting five here. So with apologies to somehow two LaSalle guys almost slipping onto this list, uh, Jameer Brickes and Deshaun Shepard, you're not going to quite make my team.
1: I do specifically remember I took Jameer Brickus as a freshman, so I, I didn't want to take him again. Although he he deserves it this year,
0: I won't I won't be taking him either. Though I'm going to go with another guy who plays a lot like Jameer Brickus, but has had possibly even a better season. I think with with lesser offensive talent around him, and that is Grant Huffman of Davidson. Hmm. There's nothing specific that's fun to watch about Grant Huffman. But by God, that dude just plays the game well. Always going to be the most brilliant player on the court. He's a true do-everything grit point guard. Always been a great defender, a great passer. But now with a heaping load of responsibility on his shoulders, he's become a reliable scorer for them. A legitimate top two go-to guy for the Wildcats. And I just, I enjoy the fact that every single time, whether it was Bob McKillop in the past or Matt McKillop now, every time a McKillop has gone to him and asked him to take more responsibility, he has played better every single time. It's a full diagonal up through line of his entire career. And you know what? I'm gonna really enjoy when he is an awesome third guard on a really good NCAA tournament team next year, as a fifth year senior.
1: Yeah, I I think this is kind of finally the first year too. Like he's always done things well for Davidson, but it's never been reflected in the stats. He's an assist away from, or well, point one assists away from averaging a triple nickel, but 13.5 points, five rebounds, 4.9 assists. So it's really showing up in the box course this year. And you were right on this all along. He is Davidson's most valuable player this season. And that is what the Wildcats needed to recover from last season's downturn. So yeah, it, it's kind of nice to just see one of those guys that stays four years and gradually improves after not really producing much as a an underclassman. And now he, he's turned into a great Atlantic 10 player. Okay, my last pick, I, I messed up my draft. I, uh, I need to take another guard, I think. And I don't really like any of the names left that I have written down. So, you know what? I'm just going to take the guy who I believe is largely responsible for Loyola being pretty good this year and something I didn't expect. Give me Jaden Dawson and apologies to Miles Rubin, who probably is more deserving, but I already have some big guys on my team. Miles Rubin also up there. Well, for a lot of the season, he's been leading the nation in block rate, but also up there in dunks this year. But just Jaden Dawson, that Loyola finally found their heat check guy that can get hot from three and help them extend leads or get back into games also a solid defender on a team that's really improved in that mark this year uh, could block rate and steal rate for a guard of his size and I, I just attribute a lot of oil success over the last month he's finally established himself in a starting role and it's paid dividends he's had some huge games lately and Think that's he—he's a candidate also for most improved this year as we head toward the home stretch of the season.
0: Yeah, another good one. Uh, just I don't know, just not enough uh, enough flash there for me for what Jaden Dawson does. But someone that I did definitely think about. I'm just flipping around the other teams in my head. So no Bonaventure, you can be kind of just preventing like. Mary yeah. Evans, if he just played more, yeah, would unquestionably be be on this list.
1: He was the only guy I really thought about from that team. uh UMass Cross,
0: I think. I feel like Co- Cross Cohen's was... the most boring of the four stud centers. Sorry.
1: Yeah, I feel like Cross was definitely discussed last year too, so I didn't. I kind of eliminated him if he wasn't picked last year. I apologize because I just sort of assumed he was. We talked about him a lot last season.
0: If Jaden Jingay just like ever made a jumper, he could be on there.
1: Yeah, he is. Um,
0: he is the guy
1: for next year that if he could just learn how to shoot, he would suddenly be a star, but he can't right now.
0: Duquesne, you could have gone Dixon or Clark, but they're gonna, they're just gonna free fall down the team entertainment rankings. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, for God's sake, Keith Dan Brot started his press conference the other day by saying that they finally figured out who they are, and that's a team who wins by mud wrestling. And <laughs> basically, ever since the Dayton game, the, the Duquesne perf- games have just truly been hideous. And they've won two of them and lost the other two at the buzzer. So it's yeah. working. They're going to keep doing it. But they're not going to be very fun.
1: No, not really what we expected.
0: Um, St. Louis... We talked about this for a second right before. Hargrove would have been a candidate for me, but that that's one of the least watchable teams in years in this they, league.
1: They're more fun off Oof. the court right now. That's about all yeah. I can say. So.
0: What else are we missing?
1: You know what was fun? And I noticed this the uh, No Context College Basketball account tweeted it uh, this weekend, but I noticed it a couple weeks ago too. Travis Ford just drinking out of what looks like a souvenir cup. On the sidelines, that's even better than purely iced tea. Like he's <laughs> just got a six dollar diet coke in his Belkin cup. That, that's too funny.
0: Yeah, Travis Ford is providing most of people's St. Louis based entertainment at this point in the season. Yeah, <laughs> who's the other team we didn't mention? Well, you talked about
1: sal a little bit. I, I guess I'd want to throw oh, yeah, out yeah.
0: Uh,
1: out of freshman. I don't think he's going to get all rookie, but. Tunde Wahlberg Fasasi's had a couple breakout games where he'll just knock down a few threes and like clearly I I think he needs to put on some muscle but and it's kind of his fault or not his fault too because he's got to play out of position sometimes for LaSalle he's just he's probably more of a three but they need him more in the post just with how that team's equipped but kind of considered him He, he could be someone for next year.
0: Last week we talked about like the seven rookies that were starting to break away for like all rookie honors. And then Fasasi and Baraka Koji on George Mason went out and split rookie of the week. Yeah. Okoji was unbelievable in the second half of that Rhode Island game. They would they wouldn't put polite back in because a Koji, I, I I'm going to butcher it like four more times. We even had to say his name on the, sh- on this show yet this year, <laughs> but He was just getting to the rim every single time he wanted to against Rhodey in the second half.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Honestly, if Keyshawn Hall wasn't such an obvious choice for Mason, like he just, I think for, for a freshman, like what he's done in certain moments this year, he's another guy to keep an eye on for next year. I would say.
0: We also have may add in someone if I'm forgetting them, but the MVPs of the, Oh, this guy barely plays. But in his three minutes, he might get himself on Sports Center award. Normally there's always just one freak yet. Like last year's Toby the Wall. Mm-hmm. This year it's both Jakob Nechas and Sean Simmons. Mainly because at any moment during the four to five minutes that they each play per game, they might just smack a shot into the upper deck.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean if they follow the Toby Wall. Whole breakout path maybe we'll we'll see some more of that next year
0: yeah we ju- we just might uh only other thing I want to cover here speaking of Toby Lawall Vcu after starting o2 and, and prompting conversations around the the a10 Twitter verse podcast verse whatever we want to call it as to whether or not they were just going to fall apart. They've won five straight. They're in third place. And if Richmond hadn't just beaten Dayton, I'm pretty sure the Rams would have been the talk of the week here.
1: I I think you're right. They're heading in the right direction, and it might be what we predicted all along, that they were going to start slow and build themselves up. And, hey, at this point, maybe VCU is our best path to a three-bid league if they can win the A-10 tournament and if Richmond can keep this winning streak up a little bit longer.
0: I have seen nothing in the last four weeks to make me back off on my power eight hot take that VCU not only could, but will win the A-10 tournament. We saw what happened last week when Bama still gets hot. That team's basically unbeatable because you have to just go outscore them at that point and, When he's not hot, they just don't play him. It's an unbelievable asset to have. The biggest thing, what I'm going to pay attention the most for the next like three, four weeks, is if we just start getting more of the Bear-Stowe five, six, seven assist games. Because if that's happening and they're continuing to produce offense with Bell and Jackson being able to play big minutes for the sake of their defense, then that team starts to become really, really scary for Dayton and Richmond at the top.
1: I'm, I'm feeling silly for doubting VCU just a couple weeks ago when they were 0-2, but everybody should have known better. I mean, if you've paid any attention the last 11 years, they've been in the A-10.
0: By the way, Saturday, the Lumber, Honda, whatever, Crosstown, shootout Out Classic, whatever the hell it's called at this point, Richmond VCU, standalone A-10 game to wrap up a five-game Saturday. That's going to be a hell of a game. And if Richmond beats Fordham on Wednesday and then they beat VCU to finish the first half 9-0, oh my God, VCU fans. (laughs) (laughs) It, It
1: really seems like this would be the year, like, other than the 2021 a10 tournament that real or 2022 sorry a10 tournament that sticks out when Richmond went on their big run vcus kind of had their number recently and this seems like the spider's best chance to make a big statement this weekend and start to turn the tides a little bit so that that will be very interesting I'm I'm looking forward to it
0: hey Chris Mooney was one and seven against Anthony Grant before Saturday
1: yeah, and you so could argue the,
0: he he's won the two that counted the most. I, I don't even think it's an argument. The other being the day after he beat VCU in the 2022 A-10 tournament. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you can follow the through line. Dayton wins that game. Richmond doesn't get a bid. And even if they lose to Davidson the next day, it seems like they would have then been the last team in the field. So that was more or less kind of an NCAA tournament play in. And now, in a battle for first place, uh, he gets the best of them again.
1: It's going to be real sad if Dayton's not, if they're the first team out again this year after losing to Richmond. I think the Flyers are in better shape. If but... Dayton's
0: the first team out this year, there's a lot bigger something... problems than the fact that they just lost a road game to a top 70 team in the net. Well,
1: yeah, that would mean something terrible happened, but. Hey, the flyers still. You know
0: what? No longer in the driver's seat. They've gotta. They've gotta catch back up. All right, I saved this for the very end, but as we talk about that game, that second half was the single most despicable refereeing performance I can remember in like multiple seasons. Ugh. That was just, just disgusting. They More let every they let everything go in the first half, and then you just start calling every ticky tack reach. And I know players should adjust, but. I'm sitting there having a fun Saturday night watching this game, and now Deron Holmes and Neil Quinn are both on the bench. Well, and it just the, sucked. Like, I want to watch Holmes play Quinn.
1: The problem with that, too, is that Dayton and Richmond are probably the two teams in the conference that foul the least on defense. Like, they're, it's not Fordham versus Duquesne where you expect the teams to beat the crap out of each other. That's not how those teams play at all, so...
0: If those yeah, refs worked the second half of Fordham Duquesne, they would have had to just stop the game.
1: Yeah, they were to run if, out of players.
0: I can't, I actually can't believe that there wasn't a fight in that game. Yeah,
1: that was, that was Rose entertaining. And, but... Rose
0: and DeMichael were trying to kill each other every time down the floor. <laughs> but yeah, it was just, it was so, it was such a bummer. And yeah. I don't even think it was refed unfairly. It certainly hurt Dayton because of Holmes picking up that fourth that Quinn never got. But it, yeah. it was just those first like five minutes where they just decided that they were going to put on their own little clown show was just truly absurd.
1: Well, I mean, the first half where it was 20 to 15 in probably the game of the year in the eighth 10 so far, or what it was supposed to be, that that wasn't the greatest showcase for the league. Yeah, but at least, Overall, just not, at least not both great... teams
0: were playing awesome defense in that first half.
1: I mean, they were missing a lot of open shots too. Was...
0: Yeah, I mean, when you have Neil Quinn or Deron Holmes on your team, you should score twenty to twenty-five points every half, no matter what the other defense is doing. But yeah, well, that does it for this episode of the Three Bid League podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. A big thank you to Coach Mooney for joining me in the front half of this show. Be sure to tune in next week. We will be back. We will be back every week from now until the end of the season. Hell, we're going to start having two shows a week coming up here pretty soon as these games get more and more important. Just before I completely wrap this up, though, I want to take a brief moment for some somber news over the last week. Those of us who were deeply involved in A10 Twitter, Got to know one of the more entertaining VCU fans on there, Mooch, who we found out sadly passed away last week. Uh, Just a rough blow for the A10 Twitter community. And then the VCU fan base as a whole, another recognizable figure in that group, Debbie Owens also passing away last week. And just uh, not a great week for the VCU fans as a whole. Tight-knit community to lose... Two of the best known, biggest VCU fans out there. It's it's just it's stinks to hear about and you feel for their friends in the VCU community, feel for their families. But just wanted to to mention that. Big shout out to Mooch. He was one of the most entertaining VCU fans on that platform, and he certainly will be missed. But yeah, I, I don't really know how to how to really close out from that somber of a note. Uh, thank you all for listening. Be sure to keep listening. To